This episode of the One God Report podcast is the second part of our two-part interview with Christian philosopher Dr. Dale Tuggy, examining the historical development of the Trinity in the centuries following Jesus. If you haven't heard part one, you may want to listen to that episode first, in which Dr. Tuggy surveyed major historical theological developments of the 100s and 200s A.D., We saw in the first episode that at least into the mid-A.D. 200s, none of the Church Fathers were Trinitarian, in the sense that none of them believed in a tri-personal, co-equal, co-eternal God. In the current episode, Dr. Tuggy will have us look at major developments leading up to and including the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. Then we will hear about the three Cappadocian Fathers, Cappadocia was a region in what is now central modern Turkey. The Cappadocian fathers laid the groundwork for what led to the so-called Second Ecumenical Council, the Council of Constantinople of A.D. 381. Before the Council of Constantinople, even though some church fathers believed in a second, lesser God they called the Logos, they insisted on their monotheism by emphasizing the one true God, the Father. However, after the 381 Constantinople Council, the title God began to be considered the Trinity, that is, one God in three persons. Dr. Tuggy explains that the first Christian Trinitarians, those who believed in three persons in one God, did not show up historically until the late A.D. 300s. Let's get to part two. Interview with Dr. Dale Tuggy, The Evolution of the Trinity. Okay, let's move on to the Council of Nicaea, which is 325. So, but fair to say, up until this time, we don't have any real Trinitarian? That's right. What happens in the 200s is, I think, Logos theory, through the efforts of the elites, kind of claws its way to being more widespread. And certainly, at least among the theologians and the bishops, that seems to be a majority view in the end of the 200s and the early 300s. And so, yeah, this dispute broke out in Alexandria, Egypt, the big city of Egypt, about the second most important city in the Roman Empire, between this presbyter named Arius and his bishop named Alexander. And Really, the way you could describe it is it was two different types of subordinationists. So both of them believe in this second God theory, and Arius wanted to say that, uh, well, actually, this is a little unclear, but according to his enemies, he wanted to say that it came into existence a finite time ago. Uh, And the other guy was like, no, it's definitely eternal. So Arius was like the older Logos theorist in that he thought there was a beginning to the career of this Logos second God. And Alexander, his bishop, was more like Origen. He said, no, you've got to have eternal generation. Otherwise, this this second deity won't be divine enough. So it was kind of how divine is is this second deity. So and give, give me a quick definition of what you mean by subordinationist. Subordinationism just means that... Uh, the sun or the logos as the case may be is not as divine or not as great as the father 
So lesser in time or lesser in knowledge or lesser in power, or lesser in authority. Theologians like to talk about uh, functional subordinationism, that two, there might be two who are equally uh, valuable, equally great, and so on, but one might take on a lesser role. Sure, whatever, that's, that's conceivable. But the thing about mainstream Christianity is unless you're a monarchian, unless you're a modalistic monarchian who just collapses the father and son into the same being, as far as the Logos theorists, they're all subordinationists in, in various ways. So some of them, like Justin, think that the Logos came into existence when it was time to create. Okay, so then it's not eternal, like God is eternal. Several of them, uh, including uh, Irenaeus, Tertullian, they say uh, the Son knows less than the Father, based on what Jesus says in Matthew and Mark. He doesn't know the day or hour, only the Father knows those. Some of them, uh, like Origen, would say that the Son is not equal to the Father in terms of goodness. Hmm. And his idea would be that God is good through himself or good independently, where any goodness the Son has, he gets it from the Father. Mm -hmm. So they're quite explicit in making him a lesser being. They don't see any reason why he would have to be equally divine. In fact, they think it's impossible for there to be two gods in the full sense of the word. Like if you're talking monotheistic God, they think there couldn't be two of those. They, they have various arguments about, they want to show how that's a contradiction to suppose two gods. So he's a lowercase g God. Uh, he's like God, the father, the one true God in a lot of ways. Um, he is involved with creation, but he's not, he's not the creator. If the creator's the originator of everything else, He's not that. There's another who's the originator of everything else. He's just like the hands-on guy. So back to this conflict between Arius and Alexander in Egypt in the early 300s yeah. AD. Yeah, so, I mean, look, it, it's basically uh, an, an earlier type of Logos theorist versus a more origin type of Logos theorist. And some of the bishops took uh, one side and, and some took the other. Alexander managed, with the help of Constantine, to get Arius condemned. And then a couple years later, Constantine uncondemns him and exiles the other side. It, it rocks back and forth, this grab for power. Constantine, the first, in some sense, Christian emperor. That's a rather long story. Uh, Constantine was afraid that this theological dispute could disrupt the unity of his empire. And the Roman Empire had had a lot of unity problems and different emperors for different halves leading up to this time. So he came up with a new method to try to control the empire and stabilize it, which is he personally called and hosted a mean of bishops and leaned on them hard to solve this problem. According to one account, he even suggested the, the compromise word that the father and son were homoousion, the same essence, same substance. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. In a sense, it doesn't really matter. But it's a tragic case of, it's a tragic case of theology by committee because what they did was they came together to vote on this formula in order to shut up Arius and throw him out of his position as presbyter. But they didn't all agree on what the formula meant. And... 
and by the way, this is all the product of the scholarship of the last 40 years. There's been a ton of progress by very serious historians trying to figure out what actually happened at Nicaea and in the four or five decades afterwards. So some of the people who voted for that were very subordinationist, like Eusebius, and some were more like the Monarchians, where maybe they thought the word was like kind of just God himself or something like that. Hmm. And Can I just read the, the declaration of the First Council of Nicaea? It's pretty short. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's do that, and, and there might be a comment or two we can get you to make on it. Here it is. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible. Right, traditional opening. Okay. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth, who because of us men and because of our salvation came down and became incarnate and became man and suffered and rose again on the third day and ascended to the heavens and will come to judge the living and dead and in the Holy Spirit. But as for those who say there was when he was not and before being born he was not and that he came into existence out of nothing, or who assert that the Son of God is of a different hypostasis, or substance, or created, or is subject to alteration or change, these the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes. Right. So the, the condemnations at the end are directed at what they thought Arius was saying. Oh boy, where to start with this? Well, I would say this. It's not really Trinitarian. No, it's not. It, it doesn't mention a multi-personal God anywhere. Uh, it starts off by confessing the traditional Unitarian, you know, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of the heavens and earth. So one God, one creator, and that's the Father. That was traditional at that time because uh, the old baptismal creeds had been saying things to that effect since the 100s. The thing that made everybody's the, the thing that led to all the quarreling was the, the brand new language of saying that the Father and Son are the same substance or essence. And what does that mean? And it's clear that they want generation not to be creation. And this was traditional. People like Origen and Irenaeus, uh, who knows what generation is? Uh, there's no analogy for it. You know, it's although sometimes they said it was by the will of the Father, but Usually they would just kind of emphasize how doggone mysterious and impossible to understand this was. Okay, so it's clear they want to say the sun, they want to say the sun is not created, but rather generated, mm -hmm. and this eternally, right? This mm -hmm. is just origin rehashed. Mm -hmm. um, but to claim that he's the same Usia as the father, uh, and that he was made out of the substance of the father, this bothered a lot of people. They thought maybe it sounded materialistic, like as if a God had taken a portion of his material substance and made the sun out of it. Mm -hmm. So that was one reason they didn't like it. Now you might think, well, that's crazy. Who would think that? That's exactly what Tertullian thought. 
Hmm. Uh, although the portion of God's substance which he made into the Logos, um, it didn't stop being God's substance. It composed the two of them at the same time. So there's some wacky metaphysics of God going on here. But look, uh, usia in Greek, it was an old term in philosophy, and it could be taken in many ways. Which is the word substance here, that they're the same It's translated substance. as essence, essence or substance. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's three ways that it would be really common for it to be taken. One way would be uh, it could be the material of a thing. So like two clay pots would be the same usia because they're both made of clay. That was maybe a less common one. Aristotle, the old Greek philosopher, student of Plato, distinguishes first, first or primary from second or secondary usia. A primary usia is is a being, like a human usia would be like Bill Schlegel or Dale Tuggy. And then by second usia, he meant like a defining essence like humanity. So who's sitting and how many things are there here? Uh if we're talking about first usii, there are two, me and two two men. Uh if if we mean uh how many things in the sense of second Usia are there, there'd be one, which is humanity. Okay, so think about this in terms of the father and son, okay? If they're just saying they're the same individual, that's the old modalistic monarchian mistake of just collapsing the father and son together. Now you have to say the father died on the cross and sent himself and is mm. his own son, and it's just all nonsense on stilts. That can't be right. Although there were people that still thought along those lines. And some of them were at that council. Uh, but suppose you take it in the sense of second usia, so just a defining universal essence. What would that be? It would be divinity, the property of being a god. So if there are two and each one has the property of being a god, how many gods does that make? Hmm. It makes two gods. And moreover, they got to be the same kind of God because they have the same essence. So you've gotten rid of any kind of greater and lesser God idea, it seems. So what on earth? So what happened after this council? Well, the first thing they did was they all high-fived each other and went home and Arius was sent into exile and they forgot about it for a while. Like they didn't, they didn't say, wow, we've made the great discovery of Christian theology, you know, this one essence claim. What happened was uh, in the 340s, Athanasius and his acquaintance or friend Marcellus, they were continually they were continuing to argue with the subordinationist types, which were, I think, certainly the majority of the elites in the East, the bishops. And they decided later on that this was like a really important claim, that it wasn't just an ad hoc thing made up on the spot to get rid of Arius, but no, this is like a very, very important Christian claim. Most did not agree. There were a bunch of ensuing councils in the 340s, 50s, 60s, uh, and several of them tried to just, hey, let's not talk about essence. That's not a scriptural claim. It just introduces problems. Some of them tried to say, well, okay, I guess we can talk about essence, but why don't we just say similar essence instead of the same essence? And it went on and on, um, and they couldn't seem to come to any full agreement about the matter. Let me ask you a couple of things about the, the Nicene Creed and Council. First thing I would notice is that the language is very different from the Bible. All these discussions about same substance and 
hypostasis and all these things, it's, it's a different language. Mm -hmm. uh, would you agree with that? Is this oh, anything yeah. like this discussed in the scripture? Well, a true God from true God really grates on the ears if you're familiar with the New Testament, mm -hmm. right? Because it says there's one true God, and that's the Father. And that's not an inference. Like it says that in a couple of places and mm. clearly implies it. The other thing is, from what I knew about Council of Nicaea and this meeting with Constantine, I was always under the impression when I was a Trinitarian that people had always been Trinitarian. And now along comes somebody that doubts that or, or says that, no, that's not the case. Jesus maybe preexisted, but he wasn't eternally God forever. And this council met and straightened that out, and basically they got it right. They got the language. That maybe they didn't have the whole concepts down in the Bible, but they're just using new language. Is that a correct view of the Nicene Council? Is that a revisionist view? Is that just an ignorant view? Why did I used to think that? Well, I mean, that's a view that really is created by Catholic and Protestant polemicists, really in late medieval and early modern times, I think. So uh, there's another narrative that I think goes right back to John Henry Cardinal Newman, the Catholic polemicist in the 1800s. And that's the idea that Arius was a, quote, rationalist who just couldn't believe things he couldn't fully explain or fully understand, or that he was, you know, particularly philosophical and, and proud and arrogant. And he came in there with his pride and arrogance and messed everything up that had been going so well. It's just... It's completely wrong. I mean, they were all, you know, dipping into Greek philosophy in various ways. The Arians weren't particularly philosophical, nor was Arius really saying anything new. It just, he got under the skin of his bishop and he exposed a division in mainstream thinking that went way back. There's a really good book about Arius and Arian and his, what his theology actually was by the former uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. So the Anglican, the former head of Anglicanism, Rowan Williams. What he really brings out is that Arius and people like him, they were really kind of on the more conservative side. Like if you wanted to stick with the earlier than origin ideas, mm -hmm. then, you know, th that's how far they went back to the mm -hmm. time of about Justin. And uh, if anyone was going to be newer, it would be arguably the other side, but the level of argument and scholarship here, the, something that really galls me is when people say things like, look, hey, you, you don't call into question Nicaea. I mean, our best minds all got together and kind of work this out and you're, you're going to do better than them. You know, how arrogant are you? Hmm. How smart do you think you are that you can beat all these great minds? Um, Look, you, you can't imagine this like it's some kind of seminar at Yale with leading experts. A lot of these bishops weren't leading experts at all. They were just guys that somehow maneuvered themselves into that job. What they did was they really made a terrible mess because they came up with some new words and people couldn't agree on what they meant. And it led to about half a century of bitter arguing. And uh, they threw Arius out. But like I said, later he was brought back. And then he dies not too long after uh, this controversy gets going. And then it never really was about Arius. This is uh, some of the damage that Athanasius has done. Athanasius and his friend Marcellus 
seem to have come up with this term Aryan. The way what they're trying to do is just lump together all the people who don't like the Nicene Creed of 325, which was a lot of, you know, leading bishops and leading thinkers. They're trying to lump them all together and stick that label on them that they're Arians because Arius had been condemned. Uh, so it's just kind of a dirty, low-down, polemical tactic. They said, we're not Arians. We don't follow Arius. That's not why we're saying what we're saying. And, you know, bishops don't follow a presbyter. And they, they were right. Hmm. Uh, so hist history has been unkind to them. Really, they were just mainstream Christians who did not like the new language of the Nicene Creed. Those are the ones we call Arians. As the dispute went along things shifted around in a couple of ways. And at one point the air, the so-called Arians almost won because their boy was the emperor. Mm -hmm. And then he tragically died. He like fell off his horse or something. And then it flipped around. And, uh, they also started to, they started to emphasize more that the sun really has to be kind of fully divine, not just eternal, but like really, really divine. And then they started adding in the Holy spirit as well, which hadn't really been a concern early on. So what happens is around the 370s, uh, Basil of Caesarea, uh, he thinks, well, there's one true God. That's the father, traditional view. Oh, but you have to say homoousion for the son, the spirit. So then you got these two divine persons, two other divine persons. And what, what a lot of his peers said was, dude, you're a tritheist. And he was. Because he said that what's common is the divine essence, the universal divinity, and there are three different things. By hypostasis, he meant an individual being. There are three things. Each one has divinity, so there are three gods. And they continually threw this at him. And we know because he wrote about it over and over and over. He, like He was literally getting heckled for this. And then he died. He didn't have any good answer to this, in my view. Uh, his younger colleagues, who he had, you know, caused to become bishops too, because he was kind of maneuvering for power. The way that you maneuver for power as a bishop is you try to appoint other bishops that are on your team that are beholden to you. It's kind of like a rough exec executive trying to climb the ladder. And let, let me interrupt you. So we're kind of going into a, a, the new area here with these three guys that so you've mentioned Basil of Caesarea, mm -hmm. and now I think you're going to mention two more. These yeah. these are known as the Cappadocian fathers. Is that Cappadocian correct? Cappadocian or Cappadocian? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, so the two Gregories, Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianzus, I think we're left with this problem that if you're really going to double down on the, that the Father and Son are really the same essence, they're both fully divine, and you add the Holy Spirit in too, it just looks like tritheism. And basically what they came up with was, actually, that's the one God. The Trinity is the one God. And just about at this time, uh, the Roman emperor decided that he was going to step in and bring this long, bitter dispute to an end, and uh, that the Nicenes were right about everything. Of course, what the Nicenes were saying in 378 and 379 was quite different than what the Nicenes were saying in 325 or 340 or 355. Hmm. But he, so Emperor Theodosius I swoops in and declares the Nicenes are right and the other people aren't even Christians. Their churches should be taken away, their bishops deposed. They shouldn't be allowed to be called Christians. 
uh, and he called what came to be called the Second Ecumenical Council, right, ignoring this big string of previous councils in between 325 and 381. So now we call, they retroactively made Nicaea the first ecumenical council. Mm -hmm. They didn't think that at the time. They just thought this was like a deal to discipline Arius. And there are all these other following ones, they ignore those. And no, this is the second ecumenical council. What happened was in the year 380, and we have this, we have the text of this mm -hmm. from later records. Um, the emperor just declared that the, the Nicenes are right and everybody else is can only look forward to God's wrath and his wrath. And he called uh, a council to settle this in his imperial city, Constantinople, the second Rome built by Constantine. And in 381, that council happened. And the records have been lost. We don't really know what happened there other than they slightly revised the Nicene Creed and said, yeah, this is, we're just saying the same thing again. And we all have to adhere to this or you're just not a Christian and you're not going to be legally tolerated in the empire. And then in the 380s and 90s, he continued to crack down on anybody who wouldn't fall in line and also on the pagans. Mm -hmm. He basically squeezed out religious freedom in the aftermath of this. But what's so bizarre is they spin it as just repeating the Nicene Creed. But it's pretty clear to me that it meant something quite different for them. Hmm. So back in 325, they would say, hey, there's one God, the Father Almighty, and that's the one true God. Uh, but we also have a divine son, so let's not forget about him. Uh, and you can't say he came into existence. That's bad. Oh, footnote, Holy Spirit, whatever. What is he divine to? It doesn't even really say, right? We just believe in the Holy Spirit, it says at the end. Again, they had added in the Holy Spirit to the mix, but they were they were ultra conservative with their language. They just tweaked a few things about the Nicene Creed because they knew if you put like one new sentence in there, you could have another 50 years of agony about it. So they wanted to spin and uh, shape the public perception of it as just, hey, this Nicene one, that's all. The difference, though, in my view, is that in 381, when they said the Father, Son, and Spirit were one usia, and they didn't say that in the creed because they were afraid to, because that would cause problems. But in the letter from the council sent to some other bishops, they do mention that. Um, plus, we know they were thinking that by things that were being written at that time. But in their day, for, for the three to share, the same essence was for them to be the same God or persons within the same God. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as that council's over, all of a sudden, people are now talking about a triune God. Mm -hmm. So for you, this is where the Trinity is clearly understood, and we can say we have Trinitarians. Yeah. Even, even, uh, even the Gregories, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, they typically use language according to the older pattern, where God almost always means the Father. Uh, but okay, we'll call the Son God, too, sometimes. In most of their, in all of their earlier stuff, they don't talk about the Trinity being God, but they do start to talk that way right before that council. Mm -hmm. And then Augustine comes along, the famous Western bishop. Uh, he's converted in the 380s a couple years after this council, and he just talks about the triune God all over the place. Mm -hmm. He talks about the Trinity being God, and that's the pattern. Still in the East, especially, you can find people 
sticking to the older formulas, even though they believe in a triune God, they still talk about one God, the Father, God, you know, Father being God Almighty. So they would preserve the older language, but keep the new ideas. It, it gets more and more obscure, right? Why is this a kind of monotheism if there are th three things which are divine? Well, you say, well, they're, they're just persons in one God. Uh, personalities? Is that what they mean? That's what a lot of theologians will tell you nowadays. Are they trying to be paradoxical? It's all a morass, right? Hmm. So after years of research, reading you know, some of the sharpest Christian minds in the world, I wrote this uh, entry, Trinity, in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and the main body of it is all super brilliant, like brain surgeon brilliant people trying to figure out how this could make sense. Like, what does it mean to say there are three persons? Are they three beings? Are they just three ways God lives? Three aspects of God? Three something or others? Should we accept it as, apparent, as an apparent contradiction? They're all coming up with different kind of clever philosophical moves to make it come out consistent and make it be plausible, make it be a plausible fit with the Bible. And you, you just run into problems every which way you turn, right? Just most basically, if you say a person is like a personality, then it would just be like one God with three personalities. But then there is no personal rela interpersonal relationship between the Father and Son. And, ob and it seems pretty obvious in the New Testament that that's an important feature. The Son loves God, trusts God, God loves him. This is my Son whom I'm well pleased. They cooperate together, right? They got to be two different selves. So that doesn't seem any good. But if you say they're two selves, a self is a thinking being. And they're each, each one's divine. That's just to say each one is a God. You've got but I thought there one was God. one God. But what about the Trinity being God, right? That's... They, if you look at early, this is very revealing if you read older pre-Trinitarian and post-381 post material. Post-381 people, if you say, how can there be one God? They'll emphasize that there's only one divine essence, which they think entails that they're all the same God. So there's only one God because there's only one Trinity. There's only one God because there's only one divine essence that the three of them share, and somehow that one, having that one essence makes them the same God, okay? What they do early on when they're, like people like Origen and Tertullian, when they're challenged on monotheism, they emphasize the uniqueness of the Father. Because only the Father is eternal, unoriginated, you know, independent of all others, perfect in knowledge and power, uh, underived goodness, underived authority. Uh, yeah, you can have this somewhat divine second character, but, yeah, I mean, look, you should be worried about that second divine character because in the New Testament, the main star is Jesus Christ, and he's a man. He's portrayed as a man. He's explicitly called a man several times. And the second God guy, I mean, the only place where you'd think that, I guess, would be the prologue to John and maybe Philippians 2. That really should worry you. You know, that maybe you're misinterpreting those because do you need this extra eternal son in addition to the human son? Yeah, this, this history is just as we've been talking, there's so much confusion. This is a seedbed yeah. of confusion. And the scriptures say that God is not the author of confusion. This thing, a tree is known by its fruit. 
and this thing has brought nothing but confusion right to this very day, 2020. It's still not been figured out, and people are still confused about that, and people are. that's why we ignore it. We want to sweep it under a rug, call yeah. it a mystery. Yeah, I mean, the same thing that's a plaything for intellectuals. So, hey, you know, how can we make this work out as consistent? For the ordinary person, they just want nothing to do with it. So sometimes they're explicitly told that, look, the great, you know, the all-time greats couldn't figure this out. How You're not going to get anywhere, so why don't you go do something worthwhile? Hmm. That's a very important distinction you made between how people were talking about the one God before the Cappadocian Fathers and before the Constantinople Conference in 381, as opposed to how they were talking and defining the one God after. Dr. Tuggy, can I ask you to give us a brief summary of the evolution or the development of Trinitarian theology from the beginning of the second century to around the end of the fourth century, from the 100s to the end of the 300s A.D. One way you can approach it is by talking about how they use the word God, because that's, that's a reflection of their theology. So at the start of the 100s, it's just like the New Testament. The word theos almost always means the Father. That's because they think the one true God is the Father. Others could be called theoi, you know, those to whom the word of God came, John 10, uh, angels. Uh, but anyway, they... Theos is almost always God the Father. They start to, then in the 200s and 300s, they start to call the Logos God a lot, but it's not the same God as the first one we were talking about. And then when you finally get to the end stage of development, now, for the first time, God, that word, means the Trinity. You never see that before the late 300s. So... Now, they do start talking about Trinity in the late 100s, but the Trinity is God, the Logos, and this Spirit, whatever that is. So God's a member of the Trinity. God's not the Trinity. And nobody is using the word God and meaning by that, the three of them together. But that's the New Testament. But that's the distinguishing mark of a Trinitarian. The very first thing you do if you believe in a triune God is you have one or more words by which to refer to that triune God. and that doesn't exist in the New Testament, right? You could look up the kind of leading book on that, Jesus as God by Murray Harris, the evangelical textual scholar. He basically says, yeah, the word theos, God in the New Testament, it's always the father, unless there's some really specific reason why it just couldn't be the father. That's right. It's like more than 99% of the time. And never does God mean Trinity. Well, look, what's the chance that Okay, and it's not just that. They don't have any phrase to refer to God as Trinity. What's the chance that they would not have any word or phrase to refer to the triune God if they believed in a triune God? I mean, it's pretty close to zero. So the big, the, the telltale mark of the Trinitarian is they use the word God to refer to the three of them together. And you just don't see that before the late 300s. So just to summarize in theological or Christological terms what's happening— when the year 100 rolls around, it's just like the New Testament. There's one God, the Father Almighty. There's the Son of God. By the way, that's a man. And then there's God's Spirit. People start to speculate about, hmm, is the Spirit another person? Because Jesus calls it a comforter in John um, and helper. People start to speculate about whether Jesus preexisted. Some of them were Gnostics. Some of them were not. Some of them maybe were reacting to Gnostics. Logos theory comes in as a way to come up with a better 
theology that's more in keeping with Platonic ideas about God and how transcendent God is. So then you have the the one true God, but then you have this lesser other God, and uh, only this lesser other God could directly create. So in one sense, there's two creators and that there's two involved, but in another sense, really only the Father is the creator because he's the ultimate origin of the, the world. This immediately brings on a monarchian kickback. They're like, no, we don't have multiple gods and multiple creators. We have one God and one creator, and that's the Father. Come on, man, get real. Um, some of them may have collapsed the Logos together with God to make them the same self. They bump along that way all through the 200s. I mean, you see monarchian types of both kinds whether, I mean, the dynamic monarchians are basically what today is called biblical Unitarians. Uh, the modalistic monarchians are what we would call modalists or people with a oneness type theology. You have people like that in the 200s and in the 300s. For instance, the Bishop Photinus was basically a biblical Unitarian in the mid 300s. Uh, Nicaea comes along the, the council in 325 and says, no, like you, this Logos, this second God it is really divine. And that even has to include eternality, which they didn't all think quite at that point. That hadn't been made clear. And then they decided that the same types of arguments that they would use for the deity of the Son, they would try to recycle those for the deity of the Holy Spirit, like you know, being involved in salvation, being involved in creation. And so then they had, on the face of it, they had three gods. And then they said, actually, all three of them together are one god. And that was made mandatory in the year 381. And at that time, the, the problem with mandated government-enforced language like that is you, can, you can't really control easily what people think, but you can control what words they use. And... In both 325 and in 381, the words they picked didn't have a clear single meaning to them. And so people just kind of muddle along the best they can, and they try to assign some consistent meaning to them. Like if I have a conversation with an evangelical friend, which I've had many times, I, I like to ask them, like, what do you think the Trinity is? And basically they'll say things to the effect that it's three parts of one whole, and I'll say, well, are you sure you want to say that? Because they don't, tradition doesn't agree. Then they'll say something to the effect of, oh, it's all really just the same one. Like Jesus is God himself. Like, really? He's like praying to himself. And, oh, I don't know. It's a mystery. You know, like, it's just, there's no like solid landing place. And I think what people basically do is they oscillate back and forth, which is what a confused person does, specifically about the deity of Christ. When you read the book, God is one character and Jesus is another, and they're talking to each other and they're they're working with and in each other, and you just you can't confuse them, right? When Jesus cries out on the cross, you know, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you don't think God's on the cross when he says that. Like God is presumably feeling pretty bad watching his son get creamed like that at that moment. So when reading, when reading the book, we, we treat them like they're two different beings. And then in certain apologetic contexts, in certain confessional contexts, if they have you saying the creeds and so on, they think, oh, no, they're all the same God, one, one God in three persons. What does that mean? 
who knows? But anyway, you just basically you think Jesus is God himself part of the time. And then the rest of the time you think Jesus and God are two different ones, two different selves. Dr. Chuggy, thanks a lot. Well, thanks for having me, Bill. It's been a pleasure. This is Bill Schlegel for the One God Report podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help others to find us and share the podcast on social media. For constructive discussion, you are welcome to join the One God Report Facebook group. Yishma'u anavim ve'yishmahu. The humble will hear and rejoice.